0: Want to drive greater success in social commerce? With Deloitte's latest creator economy research, you can. After surveying over 500 creators and 500 brands, our insights are helping CMOs and marketing teams harness the power of content creators. And not only that, but how to do it well. See for yourself by visiting cmo.deloitte.com today. So the first brand that you remember early in your life making an impact on you?
1: Mitsuno. Uh, which is a Japanese uh, uh, brand and uh, they uh, made wonderful rugby boots. Uh, I couldn't afford them. All my buddies had them and uh, that brand still sticks with me today.
0: When was your first pair? I assume you eventually got a pair.
1: I did. Uh, and the rugby club bought it for me, which <laughs> was go. awesome. So, And that was really special.
0: Hi, I'm Jim Stengel and I help major brands find their purpose and activate it and the profits follow. For seven years, I was the global marketing officer for Procter & Gamble, where I oversaw the marketing of hundreds of brands. You may not know it, but the CMOs, the chief marketing officers of all of your favorite brands are trying to connect you with your favorite products and services through purpose. And on this show, I delve into how they do it. My guest today on the CMO podcast is Stuart Aiken. He's a Scot. He grew up in South Africa. And he's now the CEO of 8451, a leading data science and analytics company. Stewart's a CEO now, but he has been a CMO of two large retailers. This podcast is an unusual one, and it's anything but wonky. It's a useful look at the future of marketing through the lens of a brilliant data scientist. Plus, we had a lot of fun. We talked about being dads. We talked about being a rugby player. And we talked about his childhood In South Africa, and how that impacted him as a human being and as a leader. This is my conversation with Stuart Aiken. Stuart, you're the first Scott on the CMO podcast, and the first person who has been a CMO and a CEO, and you're the first advisor to the Federal Reserve Bank of Cleveland that we've had on the podcast.
1: <laughs> and a U.S. citizen, thankfully. Oh, so. well,
0: congratulations. <laughs> Thank you. So are you really an advisor to the Federal Reserve Bank of
1: Cleveland? I am on the Business Advisory Council here in Cincinnati. And uh, yes, I am an advisor to the Fed and uh, was asked to actually join the Fed up in Cleveland. But the time commitment was just crazy. You've done your research. I'm so, impressed. Yeah, well, what's that like
0: being with the Fed?
1: Oh, it's phenomenal. Um, uh, it's been a great learning experience, uh, understanding, listening to how they think about the economy, uh, what they focus on, obviously two areas of focus, uh, regardless of what others believe the focus should be, uh, but, uh, unemployment and, uh, how the economy is running inflation.
0: Is it a geeky discussion or.
1: It can be, uh, but. When you look at the eclectic group of people around the table, uh, it becomes fascinating because you have everyone from small business to educators to economists to um, uh, large businesses like a, a a Kroger and the likes um, it's it's it truly gives you a good solid foundation of what's happening in the economy.
0: well, we're going to get into your career path in a little while, but the first thing I want to do is uh, talk about your company. You're the CEO of perhaps the most mysterious company <laughs> I've talked to to date. It's called 8451, so it sounds very James Bond-ish. Love it. So <laughs> can you bring our listeners into kind of what's going on there? What they why they should care about it? What kind of company is this?
1: Absolutely. And Jim, you know, from a branding standpoint, how do you remember those numbers? <laughs> I remember them. <laughs> I'm impressed. Um, So we named it 8451, and it really is a nod to two specific things. One, it is the longitudinal address here in Cincinnati, uh, where we're sitting right now. And the reason we called it 8451, the longitudinal address, is it's a nod to the fact that we look at customers over time. We look at customers longitudinally. It is also an incredibly complex thing to solve. And it took hundreds of years to actually solve the problem of longitude. Uh, It's also numbers. We're a numbers-based company. Uh, We hire mathematicians, statisticians, and the likes. And uh, all of those culminated in 8451. The beautiful thing is as soon as someone says, you work for who? What's that? It invokes a conversation and you can start to talk about what it is you do, why it is you do, what it is we do, uh, which is in purpose of making customers' lives easier by leveraging the data Kroger has today to make individual customers' lives easier.
0: So you're about four years old, right, as a separate entity. And you deal with a tremendous amount of data, correct?
1: We do, terabytes and terabytes of it, um, and, 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 and a multitude of types of data.
0: And the data comes from customer interactions? It does.
1: We um, Other sources? It does. We, we capture the data from uh, uh, Kroger's plus card. Uh, and every time there's a purchase, we're able to uh, capture that information in, in uh, order to provide real value back to customers. And that value comes back to customers in a number of forms. One example might be fuel points and customers getting fuel points for purchasing at Kroger. Another example would be coupons we get. And I've got to um, pause here for a second. We'll send out 12 million pieces of direct mail. Yes, direct mail, snail mail in this age of digital. What's fascinating is what we'll do is track whether or not customers react differently if we send them to them digitally or uh, via snail mail. It's amazing how many customers change their behavior based on how we communicate with them. But when they get those mailers, what's most impressive is the letters Kroger gets back, the thank yous, the appreciation, largely based on timing of when those coupons drop on someone's floor. If someone is genuinely struggling to get to the end of the month and they get a coupon for a free chicken or a discount off items they typically buy, that value to that individual household is enormous and it's extended to the brands, the CPGs, as well as to, uh, the retail themselves in this case Kroger.
0: So you're how many people now at 8451?
1: We have 1,100 people been growing incredibly quickly and incredibly, incredibly fortunate. Um, uh, and, and, and we're doing a variety of things for Kroger from helping them think about the Basic four P's of marketing pricing, promotion, product, and placement. So, where we place items in the store to make it more convenient for customers to get in and get out. The past always used to be oh, you know, hide the milk so that they have to go all the way through the store. No, how do you make it more convenient for customers who just want a gallon of milk to get in and get out? So, how do you start thinking about these things differently? How do you think about pricing differently? Uh, How do you focus on having the right variety for? For for customers. And that's essentially how we leverage the data today to provide that value back to customers.
0: So you use the Kroger data, which is a mountain of data, of course, but you have other customers, correct?
1: Uh, We have a little over 1,500 CPGs that we work with today. Exactly. Huge number of customers.
0: Are there any general statements you can share with our listeners about what you've learned using this data with this 1,500 CPGs in terms of principles, behaviors, interesting yes. nuggets?
1: Uh, I'd love to. Um, here's a, a, a great nugget. It doesn't matter the data you have. What matters is the lens you place on that data. Uh, and, and let me just give you a, an example I like to use. Let's pretend for a moment you are the Kroger Butter category manager. If you are that category manager and a CPG comes to you, I'll pick on one, Lander Lakes, and they say, we've got this brand new organic butter. It's it's on trend. It's going to sell off the charts. And you have 10 SKUs, 10 items on your shelf. How do you determine which item to take off that shelf? If you have a profit lens, you will likely rank those 10 SKUs and pull that last item off. The problem is if that bottom skew, and I'm going to pick a, an extreme example, is kosher butter, what did I do? I didn't lose the sales and profitability of that item. I lost that customer. Mm. And I lost every customer buying that item. Here's where data becomes incredibly important. The substitutability of that item is incredibly important. And that's an algorithm we have to see whether an item is substitutable or not. What's interesting is typically items one, two, three, and four on the bottom of that profitability list are your niche items, your items that are really important and not, not substitutable. Items four, five, and six are your copycats of seven, eight, nine, and 10. The problem is if I'm going to pull item number four, I have to trust in that data in a big, big way that it's the right thing for the customer. It's the right thing for the retailer, and it's the right thing for the CPG. And the data helps make those decisions.
0: That's fabulous. That's fabulous. So I want to take the helicopter up a bit, but that was a really good discussion. And I'm looking forward to getting your views on brands and marketing and CMOs because you of all people have a unique lens. You have two degrees in information management. You've had two CMO type roles at Safeway and Michaels, two amazing retailers. And by the way, I have no idea how you managed at Michaels. What do they have? Like 50 <laughs> million SKUs? They do. That they have a gives lot, me lot of a headache skews. Every time I walk through. High
1: margin, but, but a lot SKU of SKU City. Yes. I mean, unbelievable.
0: And you've been a CEO at two data science analytics, analytics companies. So your perspective is unbelievable. But I have one big question first. If I go to one more marketing conference and there's a a session on is data killing creativity, I'm going to throw up. So when do we move beyond that?
1: Why is that still such a tension in our industry? I love the question. Um, uh, There there seems to be this pendulum swing every five years or so where uh, this notion of it's all creative and then it swings to it's all science and data-based. There is no question in my mind that Pendulum needs to swing to the middle and stop. There is no amount of data that can create some of the most amazing commercials we've seen. There is no amount of data that can do that. But it's the nuggets and insights that lead to that incredible uh, uh, perspective that I think is Priceless. So, how do you marry those two pieces? It's the marry, marrying of the data and the science that gets to um, the heart of problems. Something P G is famous for, and I'm going to pick on uh, an example. One of the best examples uh, I can think of, and I have no doubt in my mind you will know the example I'll share. And it's the like a girl. Uh, uh, commercial for always, the, for always, changing. exactly. Um, uh, 2015 commercial, unbelievably powerful. Right, that the nugget was, um, a girl, a young girl, doesn't run like a woman acts when she's asked what um, uh, a girl runs like, or a boy. Or a man is asked what a girl runs like. Why? That's the nugget. That's the insight. And then the portrayal of that was the creativity, which was just priceless, where they just filmed people, didn't ask them to act. It was all natural. And you saw that. That's powerful. And for me, that's a great example of marrying those two pieces like nothing I've seen before.
0: Yeah, it's been a great thing. And they've stayed with it. And it's continued to grow grow the brand and be successful. So I now want to go back a little bit to your upbringing and go way back in the life of Stuart. And you're a Scot, uh, born in… I was actually
1: born in Cape Town, South Africa. You were born in… Okay. Both my parents are Scottish. Scottish, but
0: you were born in South Africa. And you were raised largely in South Africa.
1: I uh, was for 10 years in South Africa and then moved to, uh, to Scotland.
0: And you were raised at least part of your upbringing with, uh, with a single mom?
1: Uh, most of it. Most yeah, of it with a single exactly, mom. Exactly.
0: You were a big sports person. Yes. Rugby and swimming. Yes. yes. And you eventually went, you know, went to university at Scotland and studied uh, information management and got two degrees. Yeah, correct. And, and I think went on to be a professor, which we'll talk about later. So what about that uh, upbringing, which uh, versus your peers here in the US, probably a little bit unusual. What about that has defined you as a leader, as a human being, as a CEO? As a parent, you know, what about that upbringing was pivotal?
1: Uh, great question. Um, obviously, growing up in South Africa during apartheid, it had a massive, massive impact on me. But as a young child, you know there's something happening here and being open to seeing what's actually happening around you, regardless of what the news or whatever, which was clearly being um, uh, propagandized, that had, and still today, has a huge impact on me. But going to Scotland, I thought I was leaving this notion of um, bigotry. And the first question I was asked when I went to the UK was which football team, soccer team did I support? And it was—is are you a Rangers or Celtic supporter? And I wasn't being asked what football team I support. I was being asked what religion I was. And that same bigotry that existed in South Africa existed in the UK, but on a completely different basis. And this notion of bias—the like a girl um, uh, example—I—I actually chair the um, the. Network of Executive Women, Women's Edge at Kroger, single mom, others who've been oppressed for way too long, women in the workforce. Um, That has had a massive impact on me and being able to look at someone and say, regardless of your race, your background, your creed, it doesn't matter. Why am I any better, worse than you are? We're not. We're human. We're people. And as a CEO, seeing everybody in the organization as no different than me helps me uh, in the office. I don't have an office. Um, I sit in a cube the same size as everybody else. I love that. I get to know my team. I get to know my people. Um, we, we've uh, got an amazing HR leader, uh, Beth Giglio. And she has helped us move massively forward in who we recruit, how we recruit. We were going to universities that were white-dominated males. What are we doing? You know, um, if you look at STEM programs, only 30 percent of STEM programs have uh, women in them. How do we bring more women into that space? 43% of our team now is women. And, and, and honestly, it's, they work a damn sight harder than some of us white dudes. So, so
0: 43% I, of your data science company is women.
1: Yes, Fabulous. absolutely. And, and ha, uh, constant focus on pay equity. It's a massively important thing to me and my leadership team and, and, and Kroger, and, uh, uh, There's a talent pool out there that people are leaving behind. It's a huge opportunity for all of us. So how has my background uh, affected me? It's affected me in looking at everybody, every opportunity to help our company be a better company, not based off of who's the easiest to hire, but who's the right person to hire, regardless of their background.
0: Stuart, I want to get now a little bit more into your career. And it's been heavy in retail and technology, Mm -hmm. right? And you were a professor for a while, but you seem to have abandoned the classroom and gone into industry and into retail and into analytics. So what was in your mind? Why did you make that move? Why did you jump? You were in academics. Yeah. From what I know about you, you probably enjoyed that. Loved it. So what compelled you to shift?
1: Uh, Great question. Um, Yeah, I taught artificial intelligence back in the early 90s when it was... Uh, Nascent. Very. And um, landed up getting into IT. I was a programmer in Silicon Valley. I thought I was going to be a bazillionaire, failed miserably, but uh, a great learning experience. What got me to shift was people. People taking bets on me. Uh, People seeing something, quite frankly, I didn't see in me. Um, And uh, these are prominent people today in um uh the the retail world brian cornell uh, uh he ceo of target yeah still a phenomenal mentor of mine and and took a bet on me to move uh to michael's uh with him uh from safeway and he uh took a bet uh the 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 current cmo uh or the vp of marketing at the time mike manassi took a bet on me to move from IT to marketing and i think about that an awful lot these were big big bets individuals were play, paying and 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 put in me how can i pay that back how could, how do i look at an individual and say there is something there that i need to pull out of of someone else and and how do i pay that back uh, you know i'll be forever in debt with these people who took big bets on me it wasn't me i didn't plan anything out these were truly bets taken on me
0: what would you say is the key to success for today's cmo if you said data you wouldn't be the only one at deloitte however we believe data is only half of the equation the other half story because data is the language of business but story is the language of humans and we believe the most successful CMOs know how to harness the power of both data and story to learn more about Deloitte CMO program and how we can help today's CMOs succeed. Visit cmo.deloitte.com. When you were back in school, did you think you would have a career in academics?
1: Absolutely. Uh, I, listen, one day I'd love to go back and, and, and teach that, um, you know, I, I wanted to be a PE teacher. I wanted to, uh, uh, I, I love working with kids. In fact, my son's just started university, and what's he going to be? A teacher. Good for him. Fantastic. Uh, but um, yes, I will, I will go back and, and, and teach one day. I'd, I can't wait.
0: So academics to Safeway to Michaels to Dunhunby, another data science firm, and then to 8451, which is affiliated with Kroger. So what about that career? Where, where was it the toughest? in that career track so far what 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 job what assignment what time was really trying for you
1: man i'd love to ask you that same question. i have a good <laughs> answer for that I'll, we can
0: go there if you want good
1: we, we yeah. should because um uh i'd i'd love to know if it's similar to uh to to mine which is honestly the higher up you get in an organization the more quite frankly out of touch you are with what Mm -hmm. You know, getting your hands dirty and actually having a real impact. The impact you have today, or I have today, is picking the right people for the right job, coaching, mentoring, pushing, um, lifting up. Um, And you see them grow, and that's the gratification you get. This The instant gratification I had when I was a coder, there will never be anything like that again. You know, I'd, I'd, I'd work until three in the morning, be back in the office at seven, nothing like it. Um, but today, it, the hardest part is genuinely not having my hands around the data. Um, just uh, knowing I have to do everything through others mm-hmm. is... I missed the work.
0: Yeah. The short answer to that question for me is when I was at P&G, actually I wasn't terribly senior, but I was sent to an acquisition Mm. and the acquisition was not happy about being acquired and there was just a fundamental lack of trust. And to be in an environment where there is no trust is the toughest.
1: How did you build it?
0: Through behavior, through action, through consistency, through openness through uh, seeking for win-wins for not being the arrogant acquirer to be a translator and to try to preserve what was special about the business and brand while becoming part of PNG. Right. So because at
1: the end of the day, that was the acquiring company. That's right. But building that trust and trust is such an important word, especially in something like that.
0: It's essential in in everything. But, but that was hard. That was hard on my uh, business life, personal life, because it was just a, was all in.
1: Did you move your family too? Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. That's
0: the top yeah. part, too. So it's, uh, <laughs> but anyway, um, I want to get back to you. Uh, you've now been a CEO for 10 years. Yes. So I want you to talk about that 10-year span. How are you a better CEO now than you were 10 years ago? What has changed in how you lead?
1: Learning to let go. Um, realizing I can't do it all myself. Realizing that I need to hire people better than me much better than me, and, and trust me, every single person that works for me is smarter than me. Good for you. Um, uh, I'm, I'm incredibly, incredibly lucky from that standpoint, but I think that's the biggest transition I went through was uh, realizing I don't do the work. The folks reporting to me get the work done, uh, so how do I get the best people out there? Uh, and, 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 and put them in a culture they love to work in an environment that's fun, that's vibrant, that's exciting, that they want to be in. You know, there are always going to be people who will pay them more than what we will pay them, but can we provide an environment where uh, they truly love to come? They get up in the morning and they want to come to the office. That makes such a difference.
0: Everyone tries to, or says they try to create that kind of culture. What tips have you, do you have, or what have you done To build that at 8451?
1: No offices. Doesn't matter what level you are in the business. We are all in this together. So that's first and foremost. Secondly, having an open door policy, people need to feel like they can come to me or anyone in the leadership team with any issues. And shame on me if I react badly. Uh, And if it's directed at me too. Um, uh, So uh, that's first and foremost. It's going back to your your point around trust when you had to uh go help bring the other company in building that trust uh and and being a genuine leader um it's okay to show emotion it's okay to say i messed up it's uh and in fact i find um the 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 value of that is so much greater than any harm that could come from that or people thinking you're weak or whatever some other book might tell you uh, being open, genuine, real with people versus putting on airs. Uh, I love that and, and want that from the rest of my team. And I'll have uh, uh, folks from around the organization come tell me when others aren't necessarily exhibiting that same behavior, which is powerful so it's as self-correcting. well. Self-correcting.
0: Yeah. So you're pioneering in data science and analytics, right? You're one of the leading companies in the space. So you need to be making mistakes, stretching, trying Absolutely. things, breaking things. How do you handle that? How do you build the culture to do that? And how do you make it okay for people to productively experiment and fail?
1: You know, it's a great question because expectations today of failure is, um, is not great, uh, especially in retail. Retail is tough. You know, razor-thin margins, one mistake can be catastrophic. So how do you test and learn? How do you create small environments where you can go test, learn, see if something works? If it doesn't, hey, not you failed, but rather good job, what did you learn? Let's take the learnings and move to the next thing. If you are open to that culture of what did you learn? How can you take that and apply it to the next thing you do? We want you all day long in the business. Uh, uh, Test and there cannot be enough testing and learning going on in the business. Uh, and, and I'm open to people testing and learning without telling me, go. The more we do of that, the better.
0: You mentioned earlier uh, Brian Cornell as a mentor. Are there others who have been uh, important in your career for your development? Is there anyone else you'd like to highlight? And more importantly, what did they do to help you move forward?
1: Yeah. Yeah. Um, I've had a number throughout my career. Uh, There was someone who hired me into uh, Safeway, into their technology area, their advanced technology group. And he took a big bet on me. And uh, his name was Bob Dunst, retired now, but uh, a, a phenomenal individual who took a bet on me. Mike Manassi, who ran uh, uh, marketing for Safeway, took a bet on me. Brian Cornell took a bet on me. Quite frankly, Rodney McMullen took a CEO big bet Brogger. on me. Mm-hmm. Uh, 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 both joining Dunhumby, he was on the board of Dunhamby USA, uh, has been on the board, and then took a massive bet on the team Uh, when he acquired us in uh, 2015, a massive bet. He put me on his leadership team uh, again, a massive bet, taking a bet that 8451 can help Kroger move uh, into the 21st century at speed, at pace, uh, being willing to take risks, take the culture and infuse data science, better decision-making into the Kroger business itself. Rodney's been a phenomenal uh, player for that uh, for me.
0: Now let's turn our lens a bit to brands and marketing. I know we're already talking about it, but I want to open up the, the uh, aperture. If CMOs of the world had your lens on what you see happening in data science and analytics and creativity, what would they be doing differently in your mind? How would would they spend their time differently? How would their jobs be different? How would they, you know, how would they recruit? How would they work with their partners? So talk to me a bit about that.
1: Let me ask you a quick question because you'll probably have it off the top of your head. What's the average tenure for a CMO About four and a half years. Four and a half years. That's on the forefront of a CMO's mind, and that's a problem. And how do you move away from that? Because that fear of being moved on is too prevalent, which means CMOs are less likely to take risks, take that st- step forward, do something different that the brand maybe hasn't done before. Uh, Go do research that actually reveals a nugget that is truly priceless. And then how do you creatively uh, uh, creatively bring that to life in ways that hasn't been done before? Um, We're about to do that with a 136-year-old brand at Kroger. And we're taking a bet. And we believe that this bet could be huge for Kroger, uh, but it's a bet. Um, uh, but it's based on data science. But from a creative standpoint, is a massive shift from where Kroger has been before. If you think about it today, uh, the Kroger brand plays in a space that is a sea of sameness. We have to break through that sea of sameness that is retail today and truly talk to customers in ways that are new and unique. For me, that's what CMOs need to be doing, thinking about um, the brand itself, embracing the brand, understanding that brand, and then talking about it in ways that are new and unique and relevant for today's society, not a society even 20 years ago.
0: I can't wait to see what's coming. (laughs) A
1: little teaser for
0: you. And we're talking about a $120 billion company doing that. This is not a small
1: feet. Yeah. So, uh, um, yeah, no, it's exciting and, uh, looking forward to it.
0: So you, you have a window into hundreds and hundreds of CPG companies and obviously Kroger and, uh, and you're, you're in touch with what's going on in the industry. How should marketing and brand building change as we look forward?
1: So as I look at the CPG, so if I take a little step, A further step back from what you just did there, Jim. Um, CPGs today are looking at all of these small brands popping up. It doesn't matter what category you're in.
0: Everywhere.
1: Everywhere. I'll pick on beer for a moment. Mm -hmm. Uh, But the craft beer industry is insane. The number of new microbreweries that are popping up all over the place and what the large CPGs are doing are trying to buy them up left and right. Versus going, what is it that these brands are doing that we're not? Um, and versus trying to emulate that, create that, have incubation within their businesses. They're trying to buy that incubation versus creating it inherently based off of what consumers want. The biggest issue, quite frankly, is how quickly consumers are changing today. You know, 30, 40 years ago, uh, that cycle of change was there, but nowhere near the frequency it's, that uh, right. it's happening today. So for the CMO today, understanding that frequency of change and being able to adapt and in fact, in some cases, lead and create the change that you can see coming. And the, it's there in the data. Uh, it doesn't matter what field you're in. You know, Google shares their data all the time on on, on search terms. Well whatever industry you're in, that's a basic way to understand what new trends and how do you marry that up with purchase behavior data to better understand what's coming and how do I get ahead of it.
0: So what's your feeling? I know this is kind of maybe an unfair question, but which categories or which brands or which companies do you feel are taking advantage of these capabilities? I mean, obviously you're working with Kroger. So if you look beyond that, which segments Is it financial services? Is it it automotive? Which ones do you think are leading the way or more progressive?
1: Uh, What's going to happen in financial services in the next 10 years is going to be mind blowing. When you start thinking about uh, blockchain, uh, uh, the fact that even my mother talks about Venmo today. Uh, how quickly the financial services industry is going to change? Who's going to get in there? Who's going to be the next Uber of financial services? Is just going to be mind blowing. I can't wait. The other big industry, I tell you that, um, especially in the U.S., that I see big change coming in, is healthcare, and the number of startups in healthcare. Look, it's a three and a half trillion dollar business. Yes, we're a hundred and twenty some billion dollar business in the Uh, grocery retail space, which is a $1.5 trillion business when you include restaurants. Healthcare is a $3.5 trillion business that's not been disrupted, that needs disruption. And you can see all these startups coming. Uh, And and the big issue I see in healthcare in America is 70% of the dollars are spent on the uh, uh, managing the, the issue once it's become a major issue versus preventative medicine. No, uh, Most westernized countries focus on that preventative side. Where I see big change coming is on that preventative side in the U.S. incredibly quickly. Startups left and right in that space, such a huge market space. And by the way, it's going to be phenomenal for people. And think about grocery. You know the three biggest disease states in America are caused by food, hypertension, heart health, and diabetes. Exactly right, all food related. How can we help uh, consumers make better choices? For example, sodium. I've analyzed my data. Seventeen ways to Sunday, as you might imagine. Of course, you have. And and I've got high high sodium in my diet. I'm not going to. And the number one item I'll share, bacon. I'm not going to stop eating bacon, but if I buy low-sodium bacon, low-sodium butter, low-sodium salt, low-sodium, I can have a dramatic impact on my purchase behavior, on my sodium intake, just by doing lots of little changes. How do we pr- bring that to,
0: to customers
1: and help them at scale? That's what Huge you're going to see. Major change in healthcare coming.
0: It's exciting. So what's the next generation? I, you know, blockchain, machine learning, AI, got it. But if you think about data science and analytics going forward, what are you excited about? Kind of the next threshold. Uh,
1: Wonderful, wonderful question. Um, You know, uh, I'll I'll, I'll, I'll push on that a little. Harvard recently did a a study, and and they took high school students, math students, uh, good ones, and Harvard math students and then gave them two different data sets, one clean, great data set and the other crappy data. Which one could provide the best algorithm for predictive whatever, it doesn't matter. The best data won every time. Data matters. So how do you have the best data? Because that algorithm, that AI that you're using only works on the best data set. Now, how do you take data, and forgive me right now, but if you have evil in your mission statement, that's a problem, but how do you take data, protect it for your consumer, and then provide real value back? And at Kroger, we provide real value back for the data that we get. We see that genuinely as a privilege, uh, not a right. And that privilege needs to be returned by giving value back to customers, giving them those offers, those coupons, those fuel points, et cetera, giving them great prices on items that matter most. At the end of the month, the terrible twos when people are struggling to get to, how do we put smaller items in the ad? Those sorts of things. For me, the future of AI, the future of um, uh, these algorithms is based on having the best data set. And then having the right lens on that data with the right intent, uh, uh, that's the
0: future. How do we ensure we have that good data going forward?
1: It's all in the collection. It's good data and then data that customers are very open to you having because they see value in it and being transparent on that. And uh, in the UK uh, or in Europe, GDPR has forced that on companies. And at Kroger, we're looking to get ahead of that, you know, CCPA in California right now, new legislation uh, that's coming. And in fact, Nevada just passed theirs uh, in, uh, uh, that will take place in October. But all this legislation is coming because of some of the negativity and bad things that have happened in the past. How do you get ahead of that? How do you um, then uh, deliver real value to customers with real transparency? And that's what Kroger's trying to do.
0: I'm going to have to end this beautiful interview with a series of kind of lighthearted questions, but they're also meant to get at some insights from your background and your perspective in the world. So call it a, um, a slow lightning round. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. So the first one is you're a quant kind of guy, right? So what's the geekiest thing you do?
1: The geekiest thing I do. Um, so I love to ride my road bike. And I analyze the data on my road bike 17 ways to Sunday again. Uh, uh, I use an app called Strava and I will uh, uh, use that to better my time every time. The amount of data I have on cycling is just. Do you insane. share that or it's just for yourself? Just for myself. That's, that's very good. It's my geeky. <laughs> Thanks.
0: So, how many bones have you broken playing uh, rugby?
1: Great question. I broke my neck. I've had a disc oh. removed from my back. Uh, my hands are an absolute disaster. Uh, so uh, too many to count, nine knee surgeries. Uh, it's, it's, it's a rough sport, but I'd never change a thing. Do you still play? I have wish. Uh, my knees gave out, which is why I swim, which is why I uh, ride my bike now. Uh, but uh, I was paid to play uh, through university and um, uh, just a phenomenal, phenomenal sport. Came second in the country in the U.S. two years running. I played on an all-Tongan team in San Francisco, and uh, we came second in the country two years running. Wow. My nickname on the team was White Chocolate. I took that as a great compliment. <laughs> so,
0: <laughs> Tell us more about the nickname.
1: <laughs> it was an all-Tongan team. And okay. All right. I was Got it. Uh, the, yeah. <laughs> the, Got it. the one gringo.
0: So your favorite ritual at 8451, is there something you do every day or week or at the end of the week or end of the month or around holidays? Any, any ritual that you cherish there?
1: Uh, I don't know if it's a ritual, but um, I love getting in the office early. So I'm in that's the office ritual. before 6 o'clock, uh, and that first hour and a half, two hours is priceless. Um, that's my ritual.
0: Anyone else there?
1: Sometimes. A few others. Sometimes. A few others.
0: When's the earliest you've ever gotten into your office?
1: Oh, um, board meetings and the like. So I'll get in two, three in the morning, make sure I'm prepped and ready. I can get up early. I'm lucky. Knock on wood. Or step late. <laughs> exactly.
0: So tell us what you listen to or watch or read every day.
1: Uh, um, Anything? You know, I. Uh, I I read an incredible amount of trade press um, every day because retail is changing so quickly, rapidly, evolving. The the retail model's evolving. And quite frankly, Amazon created that. Um, They've reinvented what it means to make money and how you make money in retail. Uh, But reading what they're doing, what every other retailer, whether it's apparel, uh, electronics, retail, grocery, you name it. I, I'm a passionate reader of any trade magazine.
0: Super. How about books? Do you read books? Anything interesting lately? I
1: wish I had time to read books, mm-hmm. but the one I just read was uh, uh, the John Doerr book uh, on OKRs. Uh, and in fact, uh, I was listening to it uh, mm-hmm. versus um, uh, reading it because I do that on my long bike rides. And I was shocked with some of the folks who read for John Doerr. Um, you know, Bono read for him, Bill Gates read for him. It was just an unbelievable listen. What fun, huh? But fun. Oh, my goodness.
0: Do you watch series? Yours, of course. Netflix. As well. Am- what's that? Yours, of course, as oh, well. well. Thank you. <laughs> thank <laughs> I appreciate that.
1: In fact, I have a signed book from you, and I bet you didn't know that.
0: I think I, I think I did actually. Did you? Right. Okay. I have a good memory.
1: <laughs> Cheers. I appreciate that.
0: <laughs> so, are you? A, do you watch series? Netflix, Amazon, I Hulu? Not really.
1: Don't watch that many watch shows. I'm afraid. Yeah.
0: How about the movies? Do you go to the cinema? <sighs> Not really. No. You know, and you it, drives, it drives
1: it drives uh, eighty four fifty one insane. Here's why: they are all unbelievable fans of Star Wars. Of course, they are. <laughs> Uh, it, uh, one of the guys there, Pius and Millen, love it. They bought me the trilogy. I still have left it in the cellophane. I'm almost to the point where I'm doing it just to spite <laughs>
0: You know what you could do for them? Do you have any like Star Wars Lego models around the office? Oh,
1: huge fans of that as well. They okay, they're everywhere around. Uh, the- I was yeah, going to yeah.
0: say you could get them some Lego models and build them for <laughs> play, them. They play would with like that, them, yeah. Exactly. So, what's your favorite thing to do when you return to Scotland?
1: Ah, see my family. Uh, it's, um, you know, it. it, it I, I I I know I'll never go back to Scotland. I I I truly believe the American in the American dream. Um, you know, I, I told you about South Africa. I told you about Scotland. I firmly believe that this land of opportunity is absolutely here. It's alive. It's thriving. People just need to see it, and I see it every day. I feel it every day. Uh, I believe I'm living it every day. Um, uh, so I go back. I love seeing my family. I hate the weather, but um, isn't that what every person from the UK complains about, the weather? But, um, uh, but for me, uh, living in America is, is something incredibly special. Becoming a citizen is incredibly special. Um, and, uh, uh, something I, I owe to my wife who introduces me by the way, as her mail order husband, you uh, <laughs>
0: well, we, can't just drop that in there.
1: <laughs> uh, uh, so why I, does she do that? She and I met in a summer camp in Northern Wisconsin of all places. Uh, when I, uh, first started university, I wanted to visit every continent and I started with North America, fell in love with this summer camp. Fell in love with the people there and met my wife there. Uh, How many and, years ago? Uh, 22 years ago, we got married and 25 years ago, we, uh, we met. Oh, that's a sweet story. Yeah. So you yeah, go back different. there, I hope? Uh, so- we do. We have friends that still live up there. In Rhinelander, Wisconsin, of all places. So it is it's,
0: beautiful about two months a year. That's
1: right. <laughs> the two months we were at summer <laughs> <Right>. camp. <laughs> it's very romantic, those two exactly, months. Exactly, exactly. I've been
0: up there. It is beautiful.
1: So, uh, it is lovely. But uh, I, I was just back there, played a little golf, saw my mom, and uh, it was great.
0: So one last personal question, then we'll end up. You're a, you're a father. How have you managed to be a great dad with this crazy career you have?
1: You know, badly. Uh, in my mind, I think I'm good. Uh, I might turn this on YouTube by the way. Uh, Uh, but, um, in my mind, I think I'm, I, I balance it well in my heart. I know Mm. I, I could do a lot better. Uh, I wish I did do a lot better. I take my work home sometimes and, and, and that's really tough. Uh, and I wish, I wish I was better at that. Um, uh, it is a balance. It is hard, but um, I can be better. I know. I, I'd like sure, to ask you the same thing, especially with all your travel and moving your family. And-
0: yeah, we moved a lot. But I would have to say the proof, I think, is in the pudding. You know, my kids are older than yours. They're out of school. They're working. They're adults. And we are um, wonderful friends. That's and we look forward to getting together. There's no one else we'd rather spend time with. And, uh, and that didn't just fall out of the air.
1: Do you take them on family vacation? Of course we do. There you go. Yeah. That's it. We
0: just make a point of being together. And we just had a family wedding, which was just really very special.
1: Do you ever talk about the travel you had and the amount of travel you had and oh, yeah. the impact on sure, the kids? Oh, sure. yeah. Sure,
0: yeah. sure. So, and, and some of that, they, w- they participated with us, you know, because we... we when we lived in Europe, in Eastern Europe, we just we didn't travel back to the states. We traveled in Europe, in Europe. just to see everything we could when we were there. And what they an love those memories.
1: Yeah. And they talk about it like
0: it's a great shared experience.
1: Yeah. Exactly. And stuff you can talk about today relate to today. Yeah. yeah that's phenomenal. And something many kids would only dream of, so Yeah, that's um, right. It's a great opportunity. Lucky for your kids.
0: Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. So, a final final question, who would you like to hear on the CMO podcast?
1: Ooh. Well, I'd love to hear Rodney. Rodney, uh,
0: the CEO of Kroger.
1: And uh, Brian Cornell, CEO of Target. So,
0: two of the most important, biggest retailers. And two and, individuals and who are wonderful huge, leaders with great yeah, stories
1: who had huge influence on my life. And it's exactly why I'd love to hear their stories. We will see
0: what we can do. But great ideas, Stuart. Happy to introduce you to both. Thank you. I appreciate generous that. Generous and yes. personal. Yes. And uh, it's been a fabulous yeah, yeah. podcast.
1: Thank you. I appreciate you having me.
0: That was my conversation with Stuart Aiken. What I loved about this one was this gentleman's honesty, his sincerity, his passion for his work, his passion for his team and his people, and his genuine view that the future is bright if we use data in the right way to help people and help customers improve their life, make better decisions. That's it for this episode of the CMO Podcast.